I like that one graphic where it says that the call to follow Jesus wasn't just for them back then. It just wasn't for his original disciples. It's for his disciples today. It's for us today. It's just as that call, follow me, still relevant. Amen? Still relevant today. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, I don't know what happened to the rest of summer, but here we are, September 1st. Crazy, crazy. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna jump into this. You okay with that? Okay. We're gonna. Last week was Peter. Uh, today we're gonna walk through Andrew as we walk through our summer summer series of looking at the uh, the twelve disciples. And is there anything we can learn? Anything we can glean um, from their lives that might be applicable to us? Last week was Peter. This week is Andrew. But before we get there. Do you know what? Uh, do you know what an epitaph is? Like a tombstone epitaph. Are you familiar? It's, it's like a, a, a it's, it's a phrase that uh, is supposed to capture um, somebody's life, or at least a part of somebody's life. Now, either either the person can have said that about themselves and said, "Hey, I'd like to have this inscribed on my tombstone," kind of a thing, or somebody else has said it about them. Um, but it's, uh, it's in memory of somebody who has died. So I'm going to walk through a few um, epitaphs with you and follow along. Now, the first one is kind of uh, a little bit... I, I was talking to Jake about this, and I said, Jake, are you familiar with The Doors, 60s rock group, that kind of stuff? And he says, dude, I wasn't even a thought back then. So like, no... Um, so if we could, if we could have that, that, that slide up there. Okay, those of you familiar with Jim Morrison and the Doors, does that capture him? Right? True to your own spirit. How about he never killed a man that did not need killing? Robert Clay Allison, gunslinger in the Wild West, yeah. Mel Blanc, the voice of Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, that's all, folks. And this one's kind of dark. Edgar Allan Poe, the raven, quoth the raven, nevermore. Oh, feel the weight of that. Next, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Um, Sir Winston, I think you might have that backwards. Are you ready to meet your maker? And then I love these, uh, uh, Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Totally appropriate. And then Coretta, uh, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And then the last one, so fitting for William Shakespeare. Good friends of Jesus' sake forbear. To dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. That is totally William Shakespeare, right? That, is, that captures him to a... Epitaphs are revealers, are they not? They give us some insight into an individual. Again, whether that... Insight is what the individual wanted us to see or what somebody else has said about the individual. But epitaphs are revealers. They, 
they, they give us a glimpse. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set a question before us on the front end of the message, and then I'm going to come back to the same question on the back end of the message. And the question is this. As a follower of Jesus, if today was your last day on earth, and someday it will be, at least temporarily, as a follower of Jesus, if today were your last day on earth, what would you want your epitaph to say? How would you want, how would you want your epitaph to read? As a follower of Jesus, if today were your last day on earth, and someday it will be, what would you want your epitaph to say? How would you want your epitaph to read? I'm going to come back to that question, but I want to head into Andrew, a little background information on Andrew. How many of you know that Andrew was Simon Peter's brother? Andrew certainly know it. Because whenever we read his name outside of like the lists of uh, the, uh, the, the, the disciples, almost every other time, Andrew can't, can you just say my name and not attach me to Simon Peter? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, like what is, what is up with that? Andrew is part of the first grouping of the disciples in the biblical listings. Those of you who here last week, I showed those listings, four different listings, three in the Gospels, one in Acts, and there's four groupings, and the four groupings are all the same. The order may have been changed a little bit within the grouping, but they're all the same. Andrew is always in the first grouping, and Peter always heads that first grouping. So it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Peter's always first. The other three can get scrambled around a little bit. But Andrew is always listed in that first grouping. Now, James and John were brothers. Andrew and Peter were brothers. It's entirely possible that they were longtime friends. And yet, Andrew is easily the least known of the four. Remember James and John, sons of... Yeah, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, Boanerges. For example, Andrew was not included in many... Andrew was not part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. I think you could make a case that there was an inner circle among Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. In some of the most important events... Only Peter, James, and John are there. Andrew is not. For example, in Matthew's gospel, the transfiguration on the mount of Jesus, it's just Peter, James, and John. Andrew is not there. The healing of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler, Andrew is not there in Mark 5. In Mark 14, the Gethsemane prayer, it's just Peter, James, and John who are closest to Jesus. And you know what? You live with something like that long enough, and that might give you a complex, yes? Like, am I not good enough? Like, what? There doesn't seem to be any indication, however, in Scripture that Andrew had a problem with that. Outside of the places where all 12 disciples are listed, Andrew's name is listed. Mentioned only a handful of times, as I said, it's often associated with Peter. 
He appears to have lived in the shadow of the other three, especially Peter. Bill and I were talking before the service, and I can imagine conversations between Peter and Andrew not being conversations. I can imagine conversations between Peter and Andrew being monologues, with Peter basically doing all the talking, and Andrew trying to get a word in edgewise. But there's no indication that Andrew resented Peter's leadership, and there's no indication that, that Andrew sought the spotlight. I think you could make a case, whether intentionally or not, that, and, or that Peter sought the spotlight. That wasn't the case with Andrew. Andrew was okay Andrew was okay being a bit player. Andrew was okay being in the shadows. Andrew and Peter were originally from Bethsaida. So if I had a map of Israel, northern tip of Israel, northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, you would find the city of Bethsaida. Not too far from that is the city of Capernaum, where it seems like for a couple of years became Jesus' home base for his ministry. So eventually, Peter and Andrew moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum. In fact, we're told by Mark that they actually shared a house together. Most of what we know about Andrew comes from John's Gospel. I encourage you to open your Bible or open your phone or get there somehow, some way to John chapter 1. Most of what we know about Andrew comes from John's Gospel. And there are two noteworthy observations. Number one. Andrew is mentioned three times in John's Gospel, and interestingly enough, all three times it's somehow, someway, in association with Philip. There seems to have been this tight bond, this kind of camaraderie between, between Andrew and Philip. Second observation, every time Andrew appears in John's Gospel... John records him bringing someone to Jesus. John chapter 1. Andrew is bringing Peter to Jesus. We're going to look at that passage. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Who does Andrew bring to Jesus but the boy with his sack lunch? Loaves and fishes. And then John chapter 12, there are some Gentiles, specifically Greeks, who are inquiring after Jesus, and Andrew ushers them in to Jesus' presence. We might could make the case that Andrew had a missionary mindset. I don't think that's a stretch. In fact, historians plausibly inform us that one of the early church fathers, Origen, and other early reliable sources claim that Andrew actually traveled to what we now know as southern Russia and preached the gospel. There are reliable attestations, reliable sources to that. So before we dive into John chapter 1, and then we're going to go into John chapter 6, I want to put, big word here, I want to put a hermeneutical caution in place. If we define hermeneutics as the science and art of biblical interpretation, I want to put a hermeneutical caution in place. A challenge with character studies, such as we are doing this summer, walking through the 12 disciples, a challenge with character studies 
is that if we're not careful, we'll just scratch the surface of the full intention of the author in the book and his purpose for the book. But we may miss the overall intended purpose of the author. In other words, we can miss, if we're not careful, we can miss the proverbial forest for the trees. And I don't want that to happen in our summer series, but that's a challenge. For example, John's purpose for his entire gospel. If you're not familiar with John's gospel, verses 1 through 18 are called the prologue. Think setting. John 1 through 18 is basically John setting up the entire gospel. So what he has to say in John 1 through 18 is supremely important. And if we were to take a verse, a singular statement, from John 1, 1 through 18, it would be verse 14. That's the core of what John is trying to tell us. So look at verse 14 in John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm just going to stop there for now. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is all in the context of don't miss the forest for the trees. Many of you know that the word for the word word in John 1 is the Greek word logos. That's all well and good, but do you know what logos represents? Because what John is proposing in John 1.14, nobody saw it coming. The Greeks didn't see it coming. And the Jews didn't see it coming. Because this word logos can actually, hear it, hear it this way, the divine eternal logos. That's what John is after here. Quick history lesson. By logos, ancient philosophers meant the soul of the universe. All things came from it. Men derived their wisdom from it. It was the supreme governing principle of the universe. That's how the ancients saw it. Goes back 500 years, an ancient philosopher by the name of Heraclitus coined the term. Logos. John, in his use of logos, Think the, the closest parallel, I think, in our day to, to this concept of Logos, think the Force from Star Wars. Okay? That's, a, that's a, a, a somewhat parallel to how the ancients would have seen this concept of Logos. Logos was impersonal. Logos was a thing, not a person. John, in his use of Logos, absolutely trashes the fundamental, the, the fundamental Greek concept of the gods. The Greek and Roman, Roman concepts of the gods played with, toyed with humanity, used and abused humanity, could have cared less about humanity. That was the original concept, both from the Romans and the Greeks, as to how they understood the gods. This, this kind of serene detachment, divine apathy towards humanity. John radically turns that on its head. And he says, he points, 
to Jesus Christ. And he says, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the divine eternal Logos. And people were confronted with a God who cared so passionately and who lived so sacrificially. That was his posture toward humanity. That his, his expression was a man, Jesus Christ. And his emblem, his logo, we might say, the logo of the Logos, was a cross. We read this stuff. First of all, we blow right by the word word. Okay, I see the word capitalized in my Bible. Must mean something. I know it talks about Jesus. Next. And we blow right by it, guys. This, talk about, talk about Waymaker. This was a, nobody saw this coming. The Jews did not see God putting on human flesh. The Greeks and Romans did not see that this God actually cared about people, actually had people's, actually had humanity's best interests in mind to the point that this God, the Christian God, was willing to die for the sake of humanity. All of that is captured in, and the Word became flesh. Dear child of God, you should never get over that. Every time you think about that verse, every time you read that verse, that ought to mess with you. In the best sense of that phrase, it ought to mess with you. It ought to Stop you in your tracks and just praise God. The Word became flesh and lived among us. So, force for the trees. Everything else in John's Gospel, including the two passages we're going to look at today, must somehow, some way, serve, unpack, flesh out John's thesis that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Are we good with that? Is that? We good? Does that make sense? Okay? Everything must submit to John's purpose that the Word became flesh. All right, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, the first part of 42. I read part of this last week as we talked about Peter. Verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, this John here is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him saying this, say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come and you'll see, he replied. So they went, these two disciples of John the Baptist, they went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Now verse 40. 
Andrew was one of those two disciples of John the Baptist. The other was John, the writer of the gospel. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, there it is again. Why? I wonder if Andrew ever asked, dudes, like, why do you have to qualify me? Can I not just be Andrew? Why do you always have to attach Simon Peter's? Like, everybody knows that. But it didn't seem to bother him. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John the Baptist and followed Jesus. He first, what does he do right out of the gate? He first found his own brother Simon and told him, this is an incredible exclamation on the part, observation on the part of Andrew. I read this, and I, how did, like, how did he, how did he make the connection? We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and what did he do? He brought Simon to Jesus. Andrew and John, the gospel writer, were the first two to follow Jesus, although I don't think we can really call them disciples of Jesus quite yet. When Jesus met Andrew, he was already a disciple of John, so we already know that there was some kind of hunger, some kind of eagerness in John about, we might say, spiritual matters or matters of the Jewish law. He was ready. He was primed. Notice the first thing recorded that Andrew did. He brings, and then he, he makes this incredible, big word, Christological confession. This confession about the person and nature and work of Jesus Christ. Like right out of the gate. How does he know this? He spends some, what was the conversation like between John the gospel writer, Andrew, and Jesus? They spent some time together, a few hours, and somehow, someway, Andrew gleans from that conversation. He tells Peter, we have found the Messiah. Something about Jesus, something about his person, something he said, and maybe, just maybe, Andrew was spiritually alert enough spiritually in tune enough to grasp what Jesus was talking about, to grasp what Jesus was saying. Three observations. Number one, it seems that everything Andrew does, everything about Andrew from this point on is a function of his confession we have found the Messiah. Andrew was a changed dude from this point on. True, he still had to grow and grasp uh, uh, all, all of what that meant that Jesus was the Messiah. Because as a disciple of Jesus, no doubt this is true in your life, it's true in my life. We have a lot to learn, don't we, about Jesus. But we also have a lot to unlearn about our presuppositions about Jesus. Is that fair? A lot of that has to do with our upbringing. A lot of that has to do with our social circle. A lot of that has to do with our environment. 
For the longest time in my Christian walk, I've been walking with Jesus for about four decades now. And still from time to time, this mentality rears its ugly head, and I've shared it before. I grew up in an environment that valued doing. I knew that if I did X, Y, and Z, I would earn my parents, specifically my father, I would earn his approval. So I learned well to do X, Y, and Z. Even if my heart wasn't in X, Y, and Z, simply and only because I craved my father's approval. Do you think that when I became a Christian, that automatically disappeared? Not a chance. I transferred that mentality onto God himself. It's called legalism. And I thought, well, hey, it worked with my earthly father. Why won't it work with my heavenly father? If I do X, Y, and Z, he'll show me his favor. Question, is that the way it works with God? It's not. Did I have some things to unlearn about God? Do you have some things to unlearn about God? So it's this process of learning as well as unlearning, and Andrew was no exception. His presuppositions were challenged. He's shaped by Jesus' very life. But the kernel of the reality of that truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, was there from the very beginning. Second observation Andrew's statement, we have found the Messiah, serves John's overarching purpose, right? So John is building a case. He said, he makes this statement, the word became flesh, the divine logos, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, put on human flesh. The rest of his gospel is spent in support and providing evidence and proving that statement. And, and, and Andrew's confession, Christological con confession, that we have found the Messiah is John, the gospel writer, using Andrew's words to build the case that, yes, Jesus, the Word, the divine Word, the preexistent Son of God, did indeed put on human flesh. And third, this may be a little closer to home. The fruit of Peter's ministry was also, in some measure, only God knows, was also, in some measure, the fruit of Andrew's faithful witness. In other words, there is an interconnectedness when it comes to discipleship. I think that's what Paul was getting after in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, many of us are familiar with this passage. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gets... So it's not about... What's Paul saying? It's not about me, and it's not about Apollos. It's about God. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. What's Paul saying? 
There is a relationship between the sower and the waterer. In discipleship within the context of a local church, there is a relationship in all that we do together. And each will receive his own reward according to his, to his own labor. A couple weeks ago, I was at Woodman's in North Aurora. Was coming out, and in walking was none other than Joe Miller. That means nothing to anybody here except my wife. Joe Miller is the man whose life, over the course of several months, I watched. And he didn't know it. And I watched his faithful witness without him knowing that I was watching his life. He didn't know what was going on inside of me. He didn't know the intense emptiness and searching and longing and hungering that was welling up. He had no clue, but I was watching his life. And as I watched his life, I began to entertain this thought. Maybe, just maybe, he might have what I'm looking for. God worked it out where we got to work together for a, for a day, Pepsi-Cola. At the end of the day, he says, Bill, I, and I was pelting him with questions. Like, I was hungry, pelting him with questions. And he said, Bill, I enjoyed, uh, I'll, I'll always be thankful for his approach, for his posture. It wasn't Bible thumping or anything like that. It was very casual, but very strategic. Bill, enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to continue it, let me know. And that was it. He had no idea what was going on. I took him up on the offer right then and there. Got, getting out of the truck. Dude, Tuesday night, come on over. So he comes on over, sits at my kitchen table, brings his Bible, shares the gospel. I embrace Jesus Christ and the rest, as they say, is history. Saw him at Woodman's, right there in that entry area. And we talk for a few minutes and catch up. I will always be thankful for Joe Miller. There is a sense that in some measure, my, if I could put it this way, my ministry, the past 40 years, has in some sense also been, right? Joe Miller's ministry. Do you see how that works? There is this incredible interconnectedness in this making disciples who can make disciples who can make disciples. And I am convinced we have just a shadow of a hint of what awaits us on the other side for our faithfulness in making disciples who can making disciples. You have no... Brother and sister in Christ, dear child of God, you have no idea, promise you, you have no idea, this side of forever, the number of people being impacted by, only eternity will reveal that. Only the Bema seat, only the judgment seat of Christ will reveal your impact. It's incredible. Re really, God has invited me into this? Like the greatest story ever told, I, I get to play a part? If you get that, and you buy into that, your life will never lack for meaning or purpose. Never. 
I think Andrew began to get that. I think he began to understand that. Flip over a few chapters to John chapter 6. This is the famous scene, the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to read through the entire passage, 1 through 15. I'm not going to spend a lot of time parsing it out. That's not the point. But remember, this is one of the, the, one of the three passages in John's Gospel where Andrew is mentioned. And I'm going to try and make a case for the forest through the trees here. John chapter 6, verse 1 after this. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. There is, I'm just, there is so much going on here. Like, we, okay, verse 2. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain, sat down there with his disciples. Now, verse 4, the Passover, a Jewish festival was near. So, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip, the accountant, did the, did the, did the cost analysis. Philip, Philip answered him, 200 denarii, or eight months' wages, worth of bread. Bread. Going to give you a hint. That's a key word in this passage. Worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, and what follows? Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, uh, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So what's Andrew do? We have found the Messiah. From his vantage point, five loaves, two fishes, 5,000 plus people. I don't know how this is going to work, Jesus, but what do you think? You ever have that conversation with the Lord? God, I don't, like I have no clue. I have no clue how this is going to work, but what do you think? You ever ask God what he thinks? Is it okay to ask God what he thinks? I think it's entirely okay to ask God what he thinks. Lord, this is the best we got. What do you think? I think that's what Andrew did. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000, so this is well over 5,000 women and children. Then Jesus took the loaves. Okay, I'm, I'm cluing you in. We have bread, loaves, and loaves. This is the second time loaves is mentioned. Bread was mentioned. So we've got bread on the brain here, if you're paying attention. He took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the, <clears throat> from the five barley loaves, that's the fourth time bread is mentioned, that were left over by those who had eaten. No mention of fish here. Verse 14, 
When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they're connecting Old Testament scripture here. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And what was he doing on the mountain? Who was he, who was he talking to? His heavenly father. So he's in prayer on the mountain. Okay. So I could, I could like spend a whole lot of time here on Andrew. But it's not about Andrew. There is, there's like three sermons here about what's happening in this passage. And I'm going to probably do an injustice to just one piece here. But this is all about the forest through the trees as we walk through this sermon series this month. These, you have to see the 12 disciples as important, minus Judas, as important as they were in the founding of, of the church and all that entails. The story is not about them, right? It's about God. Wonder of wonders. The author of the story and the narrator of the story did what? He wrote himself into the story. So the author narrator is the star of the show. So as we walk through this summer series, yes, we're going to look through these, these, uh, these 12. Anything we can learn, anything we can, anything we can apply, that's, that's legit. But don't miss the forest for the trees. The narrative in John 6, John is totally riffing off of, off of elements of the storyline in the book of Exodus. Okay, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, Exodus, like, is the event of the Old Testament. That's it, man. Like, the prophets, the psalmists, the wisdom literature, everybody keeps referring back to the Exodus. If you're not familiar with the Exodus, that's when God rescues His people from Egyptian bondage, from worldly bondage. The Exodus, and of course, there's all kinds of stuff pointing forward to Jesus and all that kind of good stuff, but we're staying in John chapter 6. Oh, gosh. This is a story. See it as such. Did, no charge for this. This is free. Do you realize that this story, the bookends of this story, is a marriage? On the front end, the marriage of Adam and Eve. On the back end, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. You can't make this stuff up. It's almost, almost, as if this is divinely inspired. Right? Oh, so good. Anyway, um, okay. So John is riffing in John chapter 6, but also in other like throughout his gospel, riffing off the storyline of the book of freedom, right? God rescues his people, especially chapters 33 and 34. If you remember chapters 33 and, and 34, this is, where, this is where God reveals himself 
to Moses, reveals his glory to Moses, kind of, sort of, we'll get there, right? Okay, all right. In John 6, there is a miraculous feeding. We just read about it. In the book of Exodus, there is a, huh, miraculous feeding. The manna in the wilderness, the manna and the quail, right? The manna, 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 bread, bread, loaves, what? Second, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, God's, God's designated representative is talking with him on a mountain. Verse 15 of John 6, God's designated representative is talking with God on a mountain. Third, God's people are terrified of and calmed down by and speaking with God's representative leader in Exodus 34. And check out John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. That's the story we often call of Jesus doing what? Walking on the water. Are you ready? You ready for this? Go to verse 20. Verse 20, what does Jesus say? He comes to them. Boys are freaking out. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's the same word that John uses in verse 35, 41, 48, and 51 of John chapter 6, where he says, I am the bread of life or the bread that came down from heaven. That phrase, it is I, is literally, I am. I am. I've heard that before. In the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Moses, burning bush. Go tell my people. Um, okay, but wait a second. What's your name? I am that I am. What is John doing here? He is making his case that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is Jesus claiming in John chapter 6? None other than equality with the divine name. I am. That's clear. He is clearly claiming. I am the I am of Exodus. I am God. In Exodus 33, Moses asked, so God is pleased with Moses, right? And God says to Moses, ask anything you want and I will do it. If God, if God gave you that, if God, ask anything you want and I will do it, what would you say? Wow. It's as if Moses didn't skip a beat. Show me your glory. I want 
to be consumed with you. So God, there it is. You said, ask and you'll do it. Show me your glory. And God honors that request to a degree. In Exodus 33, 21 through 23, here is God's reply to Moses. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Do you get the scene? There's a song, The Cleft of Rock. Hide me in the cleft of the rock, right? So here's what God's going to do. He's going to, to a degree, he's going to honor Moses' request, but you cannot, God says, I'll take my hand away and you'll see my back, but my face, because you can't see me and live, Moses. I am that holy. You can't do it. So stand right here. I'm going to begin to pass by and I'm going to put you in this, this little fissure in this rock formation and I'm going to put my hand in front of you and I'm going to pass by and after I have passed by I will remove my hand and you can see my backside but that's that's the best I can do Moses because I don't want you to die right now do you get the picture this is so rich go back to John Chapter 1, verse 14. And we're going to read the rest of it. Jake, if you could put it on the screen. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what was the claim by John? We have seen what Moses didn't. We actually have seen God's full glory. Where? In Jesus. The Word of God became flesh, lived among us, dwelt among us. We saw it. We have seen the glory of God. This is so not about Andrew. Fair? It's about God's story and what He is doing in the world. Yes, we can learn from Andrew. We can learn from Peter. We can learn from anybody in the Bible, basically. But they're not the star of the show. Three observations. The fruit of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 was also in some measure the fruit of Andrew's trust that Jesus could do something with the book. Jesus, what do you think? I I can't figure this out, but here he is. What do you think? Second, God privileged Andrew to be involved in his story, the story of stories. I'm going to come back to that. And finally, Andrew and the rest of the disciples, just like we do, needed to realize that their ideas about the person and work of the Messiah were not to be conditioned by their tribe or popular culture but by Jesus' declaration of himself as I am. Child of God, that's where it starts. If you want to know about Jesus, let Jesus tell you about himself. It's right here. 
Let Jesus dictate the terms of who he is. Not your preferred tribe. Not popular culture. But Jesus' revelation of himself as I am. Let's wrap it up. As best we can tell, Andrew never preached to multitudes or founded any churches. Not credited with writing a New Testament letter. We actually don't know what happened to him after early in the book of Acts. The last time Andrew is mentioned by name is in Acts 1.13, where it's, it's another disciple listing. The last biblical reference to him, not even by name, but with all of the apostles, is Acts chapter 5, where all the apostles were jailed for bearing witness to the risen Jesus. So we know that Andrew was willing to suffer for his conviction. He, he never wavered from that. He grew in his understanding of Jesus and Messiah, but he never wavered from that. And he was willing to suffer for that confession. Additionally, many ancient traditions state Andrew was persecuted for his faith, but beyond that, we really have no definitive record of the role he played in the early church. So the picture that emerges from the pages of Scripture regarding Andrew is one of quiet, humble service. He was just a humble laborer for his Messiah. Watch this. Willing to do his part and then fade from the scene. Willing to do his part and then fade from the scene. We might say that Andrew was a faithful begat. Now you may be wondering uh, who to what? A faithful begat. Begat. You know what I'm talking about. You know those lineage passages in Scripture where we read so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. You know the boring passages that we tend to skip over? Right? Then what happens to so-and-so? They fade from the scene, don't they? Why? Because the story was never about them. The story isn't about you. The story isn't about me. Not primarily. God has invited us into the story, but it's His story. Wouldn't that make a great epitaph on a tombstone, though? Here lies Andrew, a faithful begat for Jesus, and then he faded from the scene. That kind of works. I asked the question at the beginning of the message. And I'm now coming back to it in closing. If today was your last day on earth as a follower of Jesus, as someday it surely will be, what would you want your epitaph to say? Would you be content with, here lies, and insert your name, Here lies Bill. A faithful begat for Jesus. 
and then he faded from the scene. Would you be content with that? Because I bet Andrew would. <laughs>